If you're not at Acts chapter 9, go ahead and turn there. We're going to be looking today at Saul's conversion. It's one of the greatest stories of human calling by God. We know him by his name Paul. I will use interchangeably Paul and Saul today, although primarily we'll refer to him as Saul because that's what this narrative in Acts 9 is, is referring to. It sees him as Saul still. Uh, he, Paul uh, was one of the apostles of the New Testament. By the Holy Spirit, he was inspired to write 13 of the epistles that shape our theology and understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning we come to the ninth chapter where we focus on the conversion of this man named Saul. We know him better as Paul, again, which is his Roman name, but his Jewish name is Saul. Some people believe that he changed his name from Saul to Paul when he was converted. Uh, that's not true. He always had a uh, Jewish name of Saul. When he was a boy in Tarsus, that's what he was referred to. It's just that now, because of the calling of God, he's going to focus on the apostleship, which is to the, to the Gentile world, and so he uses his Roman name, Paul. Now, uh, Paul was feared by Christians, and they would flee every time they saw him because he persecuted Christians. That was his main focus of his life at this time. And uh, once he was apprehended by Christ on the road to Damascus, everything changed, and he became the most revered and loved, faithful servant of Jesus Christ, loved by the believers. So what a transformation in one man. Uh, but what about the name change? Let me say this also. It was a dramatic conversion that Paul experienced. In Acts 13, Saul was one of the leaders in the church at Antioch. And after a season of prayer, the Spirit sets apart Saul and Barnabas. That's actually what it says in Acts 13. It still, even after he was saved, was referring to him as Saul. And God set apart Saul and Barnabas for their missionary journey. And it was on that missionary journey that they began to call him Paul. So that's where the transition of name comes from, is that period of time. Interestingly enough, uh, in Antioch is where they first called believers Christians. But it was not because of respect and honor that they called them Christians. They actually, it was a way to mock, it was jokingly that they called them Christians, Basically, what it meant was these are little Christs running around. They knew of Jesus as the way. They rejected it, but they looked at all these believers and they said, these little Christ, little Christ. That's what you are today. You're a little Christ. Christ is in you. Amen? The hope of glory. Praise God. That's a good thing to be indicted as being little Christs. The book of Acts sees Saul's conversion as significant. It is not only recorded in chapter 9, but it's also repeated in chapter 22, and then again in chapter 26. In chapter 22, uh, Paul gives his own personal testimony as to what happened on the road to Damascus. And in chapter 26, he's giving an account and a defense before King Agrippa in Rome. So he is very much uh, going to share this story over and over in the book of Acts. It's going to, you're going to hear about it. Uh, who is Saul? Well, by birth, he was a Jew. By conviction, 
Uh, he was a Pharisee. He was one of the Pharisees that Jesus spoke of. Now, we have no record that Jesus and Paul ever interacted, that they were in the same place at the same time. It's probably likely that Paul, who grew up in Tarsus, his father would have sent him to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel, the great teacher, and then he would have returned after his education to Tarsus. And that would have been about the time that Jesus would have began his earthly ministry. So they probably never overlapped. But Jesus spoke a lot about the Pharisees. And Paul came up in that tradition. His father was a Pharisee and he was a Pharisee. I'm laying all this out because I want you to see the dramatic splendor and glory and beauty of his conversion on the road to Damascus. To really understand who this man was in the first part of his life and then to see God reach out and call this particular individual to not only be a Christian, but to be a missionary of the gospel to the known world. This is a dramatic confession that we see here and conversion in Acts chapter 9. Paul would be known in the Bible as a missionary, a theologian. He was an evangelist. He was a pastor. He was a teacher. He was an organizer. He was a leader. He was a great thinker. He was a fighter. And he was also a lover of God. And he was a lover of God's people. And he was a lover of his fellow Jews, wishing at one point that God would allow him to suffer death, cursed, rather than the nation of Israel. That's how deep his love was for lost people. Something for us to think about. Now, as we open chapter 9, this is not the first introduction to this man. Uh, Saul uh, is mentioned back in chapter 7 when Stephen was being stoned. If you want to turn with me quickly, chapter 7, verse 58, I think. Yeah, 758. It says, Then they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen had just preached this most wonderful sermon going through the history of the Old, of the Old Testament, how the Jews had rejected the patriarchs. They rejected the prophets. They rejected the Messiah when he came on the scene. They actually had him put on a cross and murdered. This is what the Jews did. And they became so angry when they heard these words from Stephen that they gnashed their teeth, they dragged him out of the city, they picked up stones, and they stoned him to death. But before they threw their rocks at Stephen to kill him, they laid their outer garments down at the feet of a young man named Saul. Then in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, look there if you will. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. In reality, the reality is it's highly likely 
that Saul orchestrated Stephen's execution. I don't know if you have the picture in your mind as I have in mine, but the way it was preached to me, the way I've always heard this part of the narrative, is that Saul was simply this young kid and they were just laying their coats down next to him. But in reality, no, Saul, at this point in time, after Christ has already ascended, Saul is about a 40-year-old man, 30 to 35 to 40. He was already on the rampage going after Christians. It's likely that he himself was the one who got the crowd riled up, and that's why they threw their cloaks down next to him. It's interesting. Uh, back in, look, if you, if you want to see how Luke records this, in Acts chapter 6, look at verse 8. Go back to chapter 6, verse 8. It's wonderful just to kind of go through the Word. Let the, let the Bible defend the Bible. That's what we're doing. So look at Luke eight or 6, 8. He says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of the, uh, from Cilicia and Asia, some of these men rose up and disputed Stephen. And so Stephen's giving this wonderful address. He's building the case that Jesus is in fact the Messiah that the prophets in the Old Testament spoke of. And there were those Jews who began to rise up and speak against him and tried to argue with him from the Scripture. It's likely that one of them was Saul. But look what it says in verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen, who started out as a waiter of tables for the, Grecian, uh, for the Hellenistic Jews, making sure everybody got their fair share of bread, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, who had a great reputation and carried wisdom. God raised him up, and Stephen was proclaiming the gospel, and the Jewish council and everybody else was hearing about it. And these Jews came and began to speak against him because the crowd was being, was being uh, taken in the direction that Stephen was preaching. They were listening and receiving his message. These Jews could not... They could not get him to be quiet, and they, didn't, they couldn't refute his words because every time they would quote the Old Testament, he would quote the Old Testament and bring validation to the name of Jesus Christ, Saul possibly being one of them. From Stephen's execution, a great persecution came upon the church of Jesus Christ and no doubt, while Saul is the ringleader of an uprising of Jews who would seek to find and destroy all the followers of the way, Stephen's words and his conduct at his execution likely played a role in Saul's eventual conversion to Christ. I'm going to show you that by what Saul says and what Jesus says to Saul on the road to Damascus. So if you go to Acts chapter 7 real quick, and then we'll get back to chapter 9. So just one more time, Acts chapter 7, around verse 54. We've already looked at 58. Let's back up to verse 54. It says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their, te ground their teeth at Stephen. 
But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. As he's being stoned to death, as, as he's being persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ, immediately God opens up the windows of heaven and Stephen sees Jesus standing next to God the Father, cheering him on, encouraging him on. What a beautiful picture. When you stand for Christ, he stands for you. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear what he was saying. And they rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This guy who maybe has instigated the whole thing, who now has the feet or has the, the coats thrown at his feet while the crowd in a riot picks up rocks and throws them at Stephen. And Stephen in his final words says, Lord, don't hold this against them. It wouldn't be long after that Saul on one of his rampages going to a foreign city in Damascus, Syria, that he would have an encounter with Christ. And God would honor that prayer of Stephen. Don't hold this against them. And God didn't hold it against Saul. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? Somebody could be so ruthless, and yet God would not only save him, but he would become one of the sweetest names in the New Testament known by Christians everywhere. Now let's take a closer look at this man, Saul, to get a better understanding of the dramatic display of beauty and glory in his conversion. Let me tell you this, Saul's home again was Tarsus. Tarsus was a city of Asia Minor right on the Syrian border. <coughs> Excuse me, today it would be on the border of Syria and Turkey. Uh, Tarsus was about 2,200 feet up from sea level. It was about 60 miles inland from the northern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, it was a very special place. It was known for its great university. Only two other universities were great. One was in Athens and one was in Alexandria. And so it sat on the Sidonis River, which made it, gave it access to the Mediterranean. So they had a great port. This would have been a multicultural metropolis in our day. That's what this city was like back then. People were coming and going. Cargo ships lined the port. This is where Saul grew up. His father was a Roman citizen by acquisition. He was a Jew by birth. So Saul, young Saul, was taught the traditions of the Jews. He was taught the traditions of the Pharisees because his father was a Pharisee. But he was also a Roman citizen because his father was a Roman citizen. He would have been a Roman citizen. It's likely that Saul's father was also uh, one who sent Paul to 
uh, Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of that day. In Philippians 3, 5 through 6, Paul said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. So he, he was, in early part of his life, he was proud of these things. And he studied under the best. He definitely covered his bases in Judaism. In verse 6, of Philippians 3, it says that he went on to say, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. So he thought. So you can get, you, you, you really can't get more steeped into Judaism than young Saul. Now in keeping with the Jewish tradition, Every young boy had to learn a trade, and the trade in Tarsus pretty much was tent making. And these boys would actually take the long black hair of a goat, and they would weave it in such a way as to be able to use it to sew tents together. That's what Saul did by trade. But at the age of 13, uh, every young Jewish boy would become an official son of the law. It's most likely that's when Saul was sent to Jerusalem and studying under the greatest uh, Gamaliel, who was himself known as the beauty of the law. Gamaliel was known as the beauty of the law, meaning that when he articulated the law, it was beautiful. So under this teaching, Saul spends years, years, memorizing the Old Testament. Think about that now. Saul is memorizing. First of all, he learned and could recite the Pentateuch, the first five books, the Law of Moses. And then he would learn the remainder of the Old Testament. He knew it inside and out. Uh, he would become an expert in Judaism. He would become an expert in Old Testament. Nobody could refute Heresy better than Saul. He knew the Scripture. Now what's interesting is that Saul would have been born about that time of Jesus. They never crossed paths, but God did cross paths with Saul on the road to Damascus. Stephen himself was a Hellenistic Jew, a Jew from outside Israel, just like Saul. The only major difference was Stephen heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and was saved. Saul heard the gospel. Saul did hear the gospel. Because the fact that he was persecuting Christians means he, under, he knew exactly what they taught and believed. He just thought they were absolutely heretical. He saw them as falling under a false teaching, and I've got to stamp them out. His goal was to completely annihilate the Christian faith. Paul said in Acts 26, verse 9, listen to this. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus myself, uh, in that, Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the, all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. This is Paul's life. This is his life mission to stamp out Christianity. 
Luke actually records Saul's influence on Christianity this way. He said, Saul laid waste the church in Acts 6. He ravaged the church in the ESV. The, the, the inference is, the picture is of a wolf that comes to its prey and it literally ravages the flesh. It rips and tears the flesh from the animal. This is how Paul's hatred for the church is described. So after successfully clearing Jerusalem of those he believed to be heretics, those who threatened the true religion of Judaism, Paul now is going to travel to other cities and stamp out Christians there. You see, it's not enough that he has cleared out Jerusalem. He wants everybody to be cleared out. So he goes to Damascus. He receives permission from the Jewish council to take some of the temple guards with him that he might be able to bind those he finds and march them back to Jerusalem where they will be tried and they will be judged. By the way, uh, Damascus would be about six days' journey due north of Jerusalem. That's going a long way to stamp out Christians. Does that give you any idea of the zeal of this man? Six days' journey in a caravan. And it says here, verse 1, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That word breathing, he's breathing threats. You might think of somebody breathing out. That's not the case. It's actually breathing in. Like a war horse would breathe in his nostril the smell of death on the battlefield. A war horse racing full charge towards the battlefield. This was the picture of Saul. Breathing in the persecution of Christians. Saul was breathing it. And Christians to him were nothing but a menace to God and God's religion, Judaism. His objective in going to Damascus was to eradicate. Damascus, interestingly enough, is a city that is known by the, by the, uh, by the Orientals. It's known as the paradise on earth. A handful of times, it's called by one writer, a handful of pearls and a goblet of emeralds. That's because this beautiful white city sat in, the back, uh, in front of the backdrop of a beautiful lush forest. Again, 2,200 feet up. This is a beautiful place. Saul's going to ravage. There were a lot of Jews in Damascus. At this period of time, about 150,000 people lived there. And only in 66 AD, which was not long after this, uh, when the Romans came in, they literally killed 20,000 Jews in Damascus. So there are a lot of Jews that Paul's going after. The head of the Jews that were in Damascus, they believe, would have been Ananias. We will learn more about Ananias in this chapter 9. So this is what's happening. This is where they're going. And he means to do a lot of harm to Christians. 
as he draws near to the city of Damascus, we come to verse 3. Look at this. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, probably day 5 or day 6, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is a serious change of plans. He's pursuing the enemy of Judaism, the enemies of God, so he thinks. He's pursuing the followers of Jesus, and then suddenly he runs right smack dab into the master of these Christians, Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah. And he has a most dramatic experience of conversion. There are, quickly, I want to go through four elements to Saul's encounter with Jesus here in our text. First, God's call. Write that down, God's call. Secondly, the Spirit's conviction. Thirdly, Jesus' salvation. And lastly, the Spirit's consecration. God's call, the Spirit's conviction, Jesus' salvation, the Spirit's consecration. Let's look at God's calling. The first thing we need to understand is that salvation does not happen. Listen, salvation does not happen unless the Holy Spirit brings it about by the will of God. No man ever has or ever will save himself. If you are a believer today in this place, it is by the will of God that you have been saved. You should be shouting, Hallelujah! Praise God! Somehow he looked at my wretched sinfulness and he rescued me. God made it known to me the sins that I've lived in. And I have responded to him with joy in my heart and thanksgiving. And I don't walk in this Christian life out of duty or obligation, but out of such gratitude and thanksgiving that God would save me. This is exactly what happened in the story of this Ethiopian eunuch that you heard a powerful message last week, Pastor Brenton, really. Uh, we all sat together on Sunday morning in that hotel room and we watched on the big screen that we were with you in spirit, but we were just challenged by that word out of the story of the Ethiopian eunuch who, was, who had a saving faith. Thank God for that. Amen? But that's, this is exactly what happened in that story as well. It was the Holy Spirit who brought Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch. He is the one who orchestrated the intersection of those two people. See, it's always on God's terms that a person is saved. It's later recorded in Acts that the encounter happened around noon. 
It's not said here, but later in Acts, in one of Paul, and when Paul gave his own personal testimony, it was clear it happened around noon. That would have been the time when the sun was most brilliant, was, most, uh, was shining the brightest. Yet he was not blinded by the sun. He was blinded by another light that was far superior to the brightness of the sun. Now, this is the dramatic part of the conversion of Saul. None of us had that experience, I don't think. But the foundational elements, the tenets of Saul's conversion, we all experienced. If you didn't experience them, you're not saved. Because they're foundational and they happen every time. So, we're going along, living our lives in darkness, and suddenly the light comes on. And for some odd reason, God has revealed to us the truth of the gospel. Before that moment, we probably heard the gospel we might have grown up in the church, heard it hundreds of times. Nothing, nada, meant nothing. Looking up at the parents and they're just worshiping God and they're just loving and amen and all the sermons that we heard growing up. We just can't wait for church to get out and where are we going to lunch? Until the light comes on and all of a sudden God comes knocking and he calls us to salvation. That's the first thing that happens to Saul. God abruptly apprehends him. I would say God arrests him. The guy who's going to arrest Christians was himself arrested by God. That's the calling. And then you have the, convert, the Spirit's conviction. Verse 4, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. If you were to turn to Acts chapter 22, don't for sake of time, but Acts chapter 22, verse 9, write it down. It says, Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. We don't get that in the text here in Acts 9, but that's the case. They heard the voice coming out of this great light, but they didn't understand what the voice was saying. Saul knew exactly what he's saying because God came to save Saul. So you've got Saul's entourage, get the picture, these temple guards who have traveled for six days journey almost there at Damascus, and all of a sudden they're all just totally confused and exasperated by this great light and a voice out of the sky. And they don't have a clue what to do about it. Saul, however, 1 Corinthians 8, 15, 8, write it down. 1 Corinthians 15, 8, it says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Where did Jesus appear to Saul? Here. In Acts 9, he saw Jesus. Jesus appeared to him. Now, that doesn't mean that he saw the image of Christ, who would have been in the glorified body and is today, but he saw this light that blinded him. 
He knew it was the Lord. And what a glorious sequel to Stephen. Really. Stephen saw heaven open up and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He saw the Lord next to God in heaven. Here Saul stood by our text. He stood by himself and he sees the glorified Christ. The heavens are opened once more and this murderous man named Saul is gazing into the blazing glory of the same person that Stephen just saw. Man, oh man, oh man. At this moment, Stephen's prayer is answered. Lord, don't hold this against them. And Saul is saying, who are you, Lord? The scripture says that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that he raised from the dead, we are saved. You say, that doesn't seem like that's enough. Just that Paul said, who are you, Lord? How do you know he got saved? Because we know that Paul knew the gospel already. And so here he is, think about this. And he thinks it's heresy. And all of a sudden he sees the very Jesus that these people are following. He experiences his voice. And immediately he knows, wow, I was deceived. They were right. Jesus is God. And immediately, man, he is saved. He turns his life over to God. It's interesting. In Luke's writings, the repetition of a name implies a rebuke. It re implies a warning. Jesus would say, Martha, Martha. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Simon, Simon, repetition of name as a warning. Here, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, the implication is very clear. When you persecute any of the people of Jesus, you are actually persecuting Jesus. That's why as Christians we shouldn't be offended when people mock us, laugh at us, or persecute us. Because they're really doing it to our Lord. We're just, what? We're just slaves to Christ. It's not us that they're after. It's the master that we belong to that they're after. Don't take it personal. They're upset with Jesus. Jesus said, look, if they persecute you for my name's sake, you're blessed. It's right there in the Beatitudes. Blessed is the one who men talk bad about and persecute for my namesake. You're a blessed man or a woman. Praise God for that. Paul came to realize that. All these people that I've pursued, all the people that I've signed off for, for their death, it was as if I did it to Jesus himself. See, I want you to see that there's something here that's beautiful. Jesus is so bound to his body, the church, the union between us and Christ is so significant that when we take hits for his name, he takes hits. He's that near. He is that real. He is that present. And it's upon him 
that those who hit us are really hitting. Saul is convicted by the fact that every blow that he delivered to a follower of the way was a blow to Jesus of Nazareth. Later in his life, Paul would gladly say in Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I did that to Jesus. He's hit with this real issue. What is it that brings conversion? It's this issue. The issue is, why are you persecuting me? That's the issue of conviction that is eternal. Listen, if you're saved, you come to the realization, I have rejected, to this point, I have rejected the work of Christ on the cross. I have persecuted Jesus. Have you come to that? To realize that his incarnation by imputation, that he would take on your sins on the cross, do you understand that? You were the one that should have been put on the cross because you're the sinner. You're the one who should be suffering the judgment of the wages of sin being death. But Jesus took on your sin. He was put to death for you. When you come to Christ, conversion occurs when you, under conviction, realize, I rejected Jesus. That's what it's about. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Those who reject Jesus, who never turn to Christ when he comes, they are literally cursed. They will face eternal damnation. This is always the issue, church. This is, this, this is what separates those who are saved from those who are unsaved. It is not your church attendance. It's not belonging to Christian groups. It's not wearing a little cross around your neck. It has nothing to do with Christian language that you speak. It has nothing to do with the number of hymns that you've memorized, how much you love going to gospel sing-ins. It has only one thing. It has to do with you recognizing, I have rejected the perfect work of Christ on the cross for my sins. And upon recognition of that, I now surrender. Paul or Saul was arrested on that road and he surrendered on that road. You say, how do you know he was, that he surrendered? Because the Lord said, now rise and go to Damascus until I send someone to you. But see, we don't see it here in the text, but it's there. If you look at the passage, I want to say that it's Acts chapter 22. Go ahead and turn quickly. We're, we're coming to the end. I'm on the last page of my notes, which is like 30 pages. Here's the proof of conversion. Acts 22, this is the Spirit's consecration. You go from the, from the Holy Spirit's conviction 
to true conversion by Christ to now the Spirit's consecration. Once a person is truly saved, this is what happens to every believer who's saved. Look at this. And I answered, who, uh, Acts 22, 8, and I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go to Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. In our text, it doesn't read that way, but here it does. What, who are you, Lord? Saved. What shall I do? Consecrated. He immediately humbles up and obeys the Lord. He submits to Jesus immediately. So much so that he doesn't eat, doesn't see for three straight days. He has been transformed by God. His only desire now is to do exactly what Jesus said, go to Damascus. He couldn't even get there. He's, he's now at least a day or less than a day journey from entering the city, but he still can't get there. Why? He's blind. So he allows them to lead him. This is what this is what consecration looks like when a person is truly saved. The proof of conversion is work, fruit. Jesus said you'll know them by their fruits. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Paul now, who had been bearing bad fruit, is now suddenly obeying and submitting to Jesus Christ and he is going to produce tremendous fruit for the Lord. If you're here today and you're not saved, I pray that by the Holy Spirit you would experience a calling. That you would be apprehended in your heart right now by the Holy Spirit. And you would come to a conviction to realize up to this point in my life, I have rejected the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And let me tell you how you can know for sure that you've rejected it. Because even though you might have thought you got saved, you've never surrendered. You've never submit, submitted to Christ. If you haven't surrendered or submitted, you're not saved. Because people who are saved do that. They no longer are in control. They now belong to Jesus. And by the fact that you've heard this teaching today, you have the opportunity because this is the Word of God. And the seed can fall upon bad soil and it can fall upon fertile soil. And when it falls on fertile soil, it will bear forth fruit 60 to 90 fold. Today, in this place, you can be saved by simply surrendering to Jesus. Recognizing that you're a sinner that you've rejected Christ, but not today, not any longer. He is the Son of God. By faith, I receive Him as my Savior. I respond to the call of God. That's not something you do by raising a hand, by standing up, by walking forward, by kneeling at an altar. It's something that you do in your heart right now, and salvation 
is not a process. It's an event. It happens instantaneously. I'm believing that for some of you, it's already happened in this service. And for others of you, you're making that decision right now to respond to the call of God. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word, and I want to thank you for even though giving us a great picture of a dramatic conversion, yet at the root level, Paul experienced exactly what we all experienced as well. And we are so thankful that you called us. We're so thankful that you saved us. We're so thankful that you consecrated us. Lord, for those who right now, the enemy's trying to beat them up with the fact that they haven't always surrendered and submitted, that they've not been following in every case. Father, there's not a person on the earth who has been perfect in their submission. That's why you came with grace and mercy and love. But your Holy Spirit is in us. And each day, it's a new day. It's a new opportunity to follow the leading of the Spirit. And so we today, we make a fresh commitment to allow the Spirit to guide us in our walk, knowing that we are saved, not because we're perfect, but because you were perfect. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand. I, wanna, I want those who will come normally to pray with us. That would be our elders and our prayer partners to come. If you would like to pray with one of them. But let me also do this. Let's pray another prayer. Don't, don't leave yet. Let's, let's all stand and let's pray a prayer together. We're going to pray for our loved ones, for our friends, business associates, whoever they might be who do not know Jesus. Let us pray for two things. One, that they would have an encounter with God as God calls them. And number two, that we would be ready if given the opportunity to share the gospel with them. Okay? Father, thank you for this teaching from the word of God. But Lord, it, make, it makes no, it, 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 there's no fruit in it if we don't practice it. So we're first of all praying that you would bring lost people to that point of intersection, that point of apprehension, of arrest, that they would come to a point where your calling is clear to them. And like the Ethiopian eunuch, you would send us to them to explain the scripture, that they might know the gospel. Or Lord, you would send someone to them and that they, with a convicted heart, would repent and be saved and surrender to Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. God bless you.